You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and I want to say today we're going to be talking about blogs, brothers, and barbells. So I have a gentleman here who is the uh, owner and founder, along with his brother, as far as I know, of Advanced Human Performance just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, Dr. Joel Seedman. How are you today, sir? Doing good. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited about this. Oh, man, it's good to have you on. Uh, you were actually doing a little training right before you hopped on the, the webcast, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, one of my guys going, uh, he just got called from the minors to go back for baseball. So it's kind of, you know, congratulations. Good to, uh, good to see a little bit of this happen during these crazy times. So it's nice to see when athletes get called up. Uh, that's exciting for, and it's exciting for you. It's exciting for him as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about you you have a you have a phd you have your own um gym studio space performance space tell us a little bit about what you do and uh your your background and then we'll get into some of the work that you've done with nasm cool yeah no i um kind of a combination of both traditional and unorthodox background i did my undergrad and masters in kinesiology at uh, indiana university and from the moment i started um my kinesiology background and schooling at the age of 18, I started personal training, like literally from day one, which was very cool. Was, uh, looking back at it, I feel bad for my clients a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> at first. Um, I think we all think that with our first clients. Exactly. That have been. exactly. So, uh, no, so I was kind of able to apply what I learned in school and then, just, you know, continue the education process. Um, and then I did some strength and conditioning with the, with the collegiate setting at, at Indiana University. Um, you know, about, Kind of my early mid 20s i kind of started to see some issues in my own body and in my clients just some kind of commonalities where maybe certain um training protocols that were recommended you know textbook methods or things that i was taught weren't well working as well as, as what they were supposed to i was kind of starting to break down starting to see a lot of injuries kind of some common things amongst clients and i think i did a pretty good job of, of implementing what i was taught so i, I feel like it wasn't you know me not teaching it well. So I, I kind of realized, hey, I need to take a step back here and maybe start doing my own research and investigation. So I did my, my PhD um, in exercise science at the University of Georgia. And, uh, you know, pretty much, you know, during that time kept training and, and just opened up my own company um, that me and my brother run advanced human performance work with you know, everyone from uh, professional athletes, college athletes, uh, special populations, general, general populations, uh, elderly. So I just, you know, kind of a, a full gamut and wide variety of clients. And it's, it's nice because I get to kind of see the, the methods be applied to every population you can think of. So That's good. I, I know that when I was training early on, it was like whoever comes by and then I get, I, I started to niche, right? And it, right. I started doing more corrective exercise and I was longing for like a performance client. <laughs> I, was, I love the business that I got. Don't get me wrong. I was very happy about it, but but you know, when you have the ability to do multiple things, but you really kind of focus on one thing, uh, the more you do that, the kind of look over your shoulder and and miss some of the other stuff. So it's probably nice for you to have a, a good variety of people that you're working with. Oh yeah, no doubt. But it's funny, I get a lot of questions and people saying like, "Oh, it must be so nice to train, you know, pro athletes." It's like, you know what? I've come to realize that I'd rather train, you know. A uh, general population client, or even an elderly client who has a work ethic, compared to you know sometimes professional athletes, they don't always have the greatest work ethic. So that can be frustrating. Yeah. So you know it's not necessarily about who I train; it's more about how they come to the training environment in the session, and do they have the right mindset? And if they do, I don't really care if it's you know an obese person or an ultra athlete. It's all about how kind of focused they are on the on the training too. That's true. I also feel that some of the pros put up a lot of walls too, or like they're they're always on their phone when I'm working on them, and you know, and you feel like if you try to say something, you try to talk to them, then are they are they on their phone because they just don't want somebody else trying to get in their life and and yeah. get to them? And are you that guy that's doing that? So uh, yeah. I, I understand it, but there's something great about like training a 70 year old woman that's like, you changed my life. <laughs> it's true. It's very rewarding. Very for rewarding. real. All right. So I want to talk. Uh, I want to start with talking about 
uh, a post that I saw from somebody, and I think that you might have some some insights to it. Okay, so uh -oh. you have a company called uh -oh. Advanced Human Performance. So that's not just human performance. So which means you're going to have some insight on some things, and uh, you also were a contributor for and a subject matter expert on some of the projects that NASM has been working on, whether it's uh, the performance content or the corrective content. You've you've provided feedback as a subject matter expert to NASM, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. All right, so here's my question. It was Dr. Pat Davidson posted on his Instagram, and this is a paraphrase, squat mechanics are different than deadlift mechanics. And if you are sitting back into your squat, that's fine, but you're just doing deadlifts twice. So, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about the difference besides barbell placement yeah. between those two exercises? Okay. All right. Interesting. So, yeah. No, I think it, it's. I think with the, you kind of have to look to. To me, you have to start looking at two different movement patterns. You kind of have to say, here we have the squat pattern, okay, and here we have the hinge pattern, okay. And I guess if you want to really take it to kind of the extremes, okay, we could say, okay, the most upright squat that we would probably see would be a goblet squat or a front squat just because it's mm. anteriorly loaded. So we tend to have a more upright body position. And then if we want to go in the opposite extreme of kind of, you know, those two patterns, we go to the hinge and that would be maybe like an RDL or a, you know, a Romanian deadlift or even a kettlebell swing. Um, so we kind of have to separate those. Okay. Now within those two things, the squat and the hinge, we have kind of a variety of uh, variations that we can do. I remember uh, John Rusin uh, did a post on this. He showed like this continuum of like the squat and the deadlift and how there's so many kind of variations that fall in between. And, and you could say like the trap bar deadlift, for example, or even like the sumo or squat stance deadlift, we kind of fall in between these. So um, it's not just, it's not a clear cut like, oh, you know, here's the deadlift and hinge and, and here's the squat and never the twain shall meet. You kind of have these variations um, and also something to keep in mind is, is when people deadlift um, from the floor, the starting height is at a very arbitrary height. It's just how barbells and plates were made. It wasn't designed with the optimal biomechanics. There are certain height. I can't even remember the exact height that traditional Olympic uh, plates are from the ground, but that height does not always work great for some people's hips. Um, you know, it, it kind of ends up being a little bit, it, it's, it's not like very specific. If we really wanted to make it specific for each person, we would, you could say, okay, have different size plates or elevated on a, you know, a box or, or, you know, have each person a different height if they have like a specific setting. Cause I noticed with all my clients, they all have kind of like this perfect or, or very exact starting point that they feel comfortable with on a deadlift if we really want to get picky about it. So for some people, if it's too deep, and it's beyond that, that natural point, they will almost need to bend over a little bit more and create even a more hip hinge position. So again, I, I don't think it's, you know, it's not as clear and concise as like this black and white picture of like, sure. oh, you know, squat and deadlift. Now, if we're talking an RDL, yes, an RDL is a, you know, very hinge dominant position. A deadlift picking something up off the floor, all that means is that you are picking something up off of the floor. There are a lot of ways to do that safely and effectively as long as your spine is in neutral, as long as you're using your hips, and as long as the weight is close to your center of mass. I think we've got a lot of different kind of variations that we can play with in there. All right. You mentioned some other things that, that hit these, these hot buttons that people like to ask about. So one of them would be depth. Right. So what is the difference in the outcomes between kind of a more shallow squat or the the butt all the way down to the ground squat that people some people live and breathe by some people you know say let's just get the the thigh parallel right what are you looking at when you coach a squat and is that contingent upon the athlete or the client and great question so <laughs> hopefully i don't get too long-winded on this one because this is a you got time. okay cool um, <laughs> nice uh all right so um I guess one good way to kind of uh, describe this, I can give you just a brief background of where I started with when I when I was, uh, you know, back to when I was, you know, 18 to kind of, uh, I would say 25, right? The first seven years of my training, I wasn't asked to grasp squat guy, okay? Yeah. With the kind of uh, uh, caveat, 
that everybody's hips and everybody's bodies were a little bit different. So I wasn't going to force that. If somebody could not get into a very deep squat, I would just try and get them as deep as they could possibly go under like a, you know, pain-free uh, conditions and something that their form looked decent. Okay. Um, over time, I started to see some issues with that, that people who like, okay, they were squatting deep before and all of a sudden, like, even though they were able to do it previously without any issues, it started to maybe create some inflammation in the hips. Um, so I started to look a little bit more at the research and this is kind of what led me into my whole PhD thing. Um, and, and looking at joint angles and, you know, um, you know, biomechanics and length tension relationship of muscles. And then I kind of changed my, my view to like, Oh, maybe it could be more like a 90 degree squat or a parallel squat or something a little bit, it's not as extreme. We don't need to go below parallel. All right. Um, and, uh, as I, you know, kind of progressed and, and got a little bit more, um, research under my belt. Um, I started to see that when you, for, for me, okay, and when I coach up my clients and when I, when I give them the right, you know, cues and, and they really go slow and controlled and line everything up and get their body locked in, um, it's crazy, but just about everyone I've trained, they almost hit this, like, what I would consider, like, these perfect 90-degree joint angles. And I know a lot of people will not agree with that. They may not even understand that, and it's, it's a little bit, um, you know, maybe they'd have to be here in person to see it, but um, I've seen, for the most part, with my clients, when they do a squat properly, it is around 90 degree joint angles, which is about 10 to 20 degrees above parallel because we have to take into account, you know, tibial inclination. The only way you could, a 90 degree squat, a parallel squat would be the same as if you're doing a wall sit, which obviously, uh, or a Smith machine squat, which is not possible with a, with a standard squat. So I always tell people from a kind of a, a optimal biomechanics, optimal physiology, just optimal human performance standpoint, around 90 degrees is kind of what we're looking for. And if you think about like sports specificity, most movements that we do on the playing field, for the most part, there are some exceptions. We want those good, strong, uh, biomechanically efficient 90 degree positions. Now, if we're talking about an Olympic weightlifter, if we're talking about somebody that's competing in the sport of powerlifting, um, then obviously they need that, that extra range of motion. They do have to train it. However, we are starting to see more examples of professional Olympic lifters and powerlifters not training as deep during, uh, you know, off season and saving those extreme positions for when they actually need it because it can be kind of degrading to the body over time. So, wow, that sounds like the uh, the football players not tackling during practice, but then being expected to perform during the game, like they're they're minimizing the chance of injury so that they can have longevity in, in a sport that can be potentially dangerous to the body. Yeah, that's actually probably one of the best examples I've heard. I'm actually jealous I haven't used it before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start stealing that if that's all right. Hey, it's all yours now, Joel. <laughs> all right, nice. no, you made it up as far as anybody else is concerned. Okay, no, nice. no, that's, that's exactly right, though. Um, so do you see the same thing with... Um, with other particular exercises, when people are doing them, do you find that there are um, standards that that are there that maybe shouldn't be there, at least from a, a biomechanical perspective? Like, so for instance, at NASM, we look at a squat, we like a tibia torso angle, right? So if they're, the tibia and the torso are basically moving in tandem, and that's gonna allow for a nice little zigzag up position as you come up. And so you have basically the same joint angles at the hip, same at the knee and similar um, movement or ranges of motion at the ankle, which if you don't have that ankle range of motion, that squat turns into a deadlift or a good morning, right? Like right, you right. don't have that range of motion. Sometimes also people don't understand is like if they're doing an overhead squat assessment, their, their body weight assessment looks worse than their squat. And a lot of times that's because they just don't have the weight that pushes them through the compensations that they would normally have. So we're doing a body weight exercise, but we're actually seeing better mechanics when they do weighted exercise. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to identify what is a good movement? What is, and there are a lot of good movements. What is the best of the good? What's the cream of the crop? So I'm not one of those guys that's out there condemning a lot of exercises. I think there's some exercises that are just that people do that just are senseless in, in some ways, but in many of them have great things. What are some of the exercises that you see that might be a kind of commonplace, whether it's a pull up or a, uh, a glute ham machine or, you know, some, some interesting 
different squats, like people yeah. who are just on their shins and they're just, they're doing the lean back Neo yeah. from the matrix yeah. squats. Like wh right. what are your perspectives on these different movements that you see? Yeah, no, I think it's, um, yeah, I, I think you kind of nailed it there. I think there's certain biomechanical factors and features that need to be present. You know, kind of like you said with the squat. It's like, okay, we want those kind of matching tibia and torso angles. They need to be moving more or less at the same rate. Um, if there's a more extreme, significantly more extreme angle at one, you know, at the knee or the hip, then we're probably putting too much stress there. So for me, I kind of like to go under this model of uh, joint centration, which, which I think kind of plays into, you know, equally dispersing the tension across the various joints and muscles as much as possible. Obviously, you know, sometimes we do want to isolate or emphasize certain muscles. Um, but I think, you know, uh, if we're doing a squat, for example, I think this is where people kind of get into this, like, oh, I really want to hit the, the quad or I really want to hit the glute. Or I really want to hit, you know, my my outer chest more when I'm doing a chest press. It's like they, yeah. start, they start altering their biomechanics so much that it almost starts deviating from what is what is considered optimal and they start putting too much stress and tension on one particular area. And, you know, from a bodybuilding standpoint, I suppose you can like maybe make that, that justification there. The problem is for athletics and for sports performance, we know from motor learning in the field of motor control, that movement transfers and how we lift in the weight room and how we move in the weight room and do our exercises, it starts to trickle into our, you know, kind of everyday performance. So, if we start doing something like, you know, a guillotine press where you guys get their elbows real high and start bringing oh, them yeah. to the very upper chest, and you know, that's kind of an old school classic bodybuilding way to, you know, uh, quote unquote, hit the chest more, emphasize the chest more, emphasize the outer chest. Um, yeah. it's, it's questionable whether or not that's even, you know, effective or beneficial. It can be rough on the shoulder. But even if it is, you know, what ends up happening for athletes, they get so tight in their shoulders and, and you know, it actually you start to see that impact the running mechanics because with running we want the elbows down to the sides want uh, the shoulders down and relaxed and i see this all the time with athletes who have these um you know kind of uh, their shoulders are too high when they run and you look at their chest press and guess what they almost always press with their elbows too far elevated so i think one of the things that we have to be careful of is not trying to over emphasize or over isolate certain muscles while sacrificing you know for the sake of sacrificing um uh, optimal biomechanics you know we can adjust it a little bit as long as the technique is sound all right i like that i like that um i want to i've got a question about performance and then i want to go back to a hypertrophy question so a performance question that i oftentimes get asked and i want you to address it if you would for our audience is the about power and power production and okay. Um, we, when we talk about power, there are a couple of components to it, but one of those components is the rate at which we produce force. Right. And sometimes it's difficult for people because they see power lifters and right. they're lifting hundreds of pounds, but we're saying, Hey, maybe a medicine ball with 10 to 30% of your body weight at most and moving it as fast as possible, only doing 10 repetitions, right? But then they're they're like, why only 10 repetitions? I'm not gassed at all. So can you speak to power production by decreasing weight and increasing speed? And then why are we only doing a, a few reps in order to maximize um, the, the, the power outcomes from that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think like you said, it kind of comes down to this rate of, of force production and how quickly we can turn on all those motor units and some of them it, it's not just a matter of being able to turn all of them on we need to be able to turn all of them on quickly kind of like a switch okay because sport, yeah. we, we have to be able to you know go from zero to you know 100 as quickly as possible i mean that's essentially where speed and uh agility and, and you know uh, power is, is happening um so uh, one of the things that I, I always like to do with athletes is, like you said, first off, you can take a lighter load, lift it more explosively, to simply work on that power production, work on speed of movement. Um, and that's great for kind of teaching the athlete how to express their power output and how to basically demonstrate greater power, which is something that is, is it's important because um, a lot of athletes may have naturally good strength. They may even naturally have good power, but sometimes they're not very good at expressing it or displaying it on the field when it counts. And sometimes 
just a few of those power exercises mixed into the program, it's, it enables us to take all that extra force and strength that we built and teach the athlete how to transfer and translate that into a sport-specific power production uh, movement. So I, I think it's good to always include some type of explosive movement for, for every athlete. I think pretty much every workout that I do with an athlete, even, even general populations, um, I like to include at least one explosive movement every time. Just to kind of you know make sure they're firing those fast twitch fibers, <clears throat> their their nervous system is really you know going on all levels, and it's just a very different stimulus that I think even non athletes need because uh, you know it's something that everyone kind of loses power over the years. They lose their ability to fire those fast twitch muscle fibers and turn things on quickly. And whether we're talking about preventing falls, which which actually is kind of how quickly can you activate your muscles to absorb force? Well, it's actually Kind of a, a similar topic if you think about it. But to answer the last part of that, I think, you know, um, doing too many reps and having this component where you start fatiguing, one of the things with power is it's very neuromuscular uh, and, and very neurally driven, okay? It's not just about the structural strength. It's about your nervous system. And we want to ingrain mm -hmm. and remember the most explosive reps that we can do and the most power and powerful reps that we can generate. And if you do too many slow repetitions is kind of defeating the purpose and we're ingraining kind of via that whole motor learning element we're, we're uh, creating these kind of weaker general motor programs that involve lower power output and we don't want our bodies to get too used to that and we don't want to break down either so that's uh, good i like that i also like that um the, you know, when you look at it people also want such metabolic demands uh it's almost expected where it's like if i i did 10 repetitions of this, but I could do another 30. And it's not that you can do it. It's no. how you can do it. Yeah. And we want to ensure that you're producing at a high enough rate and that you're not getting diminishing returns on your force output. And yeah. if you're getting diminishing returns on your force outputs, just like you said, which is now you're practicing going slow. <laughs> and we don't, yeah. we don't want you to practice go slow. We, we, we will do something different we will train differently for metabolic outcomes. Right. And if we need some conditioning training, we will do something differently. But right now, this training, its purpose is about intensity and speed. And with that said, there's this concept called post-activation potentiation. And NASM will do this in their power phase of the OPT model where they'll do uh, a max strength lift, like one to five repetitions. And then they'll superset it with a speed thing. Like, so let's say if it's squats, then we'll do a one to five rep max on squats and then we'll superset it with a, um, uh, a box jump or something like that, right? So we're doing something really heavy and then we're doing something really light, but explosively. What is, what is, um, is there any research with post-activation potentiation and the concept there? Yeah, actually that's a, that's a, very cool topic and it's one that actually um it kind of like started about i, I think actually about 11 years ago because i remember when i was doing or finishing up my master's it was just coming onto the scene and uh i remember kind of doing this little mini presentation about it and i found it really fascinating because like hey we're talking being able to like increase power or vertical jump height or speed within like minutes so it's yeah. like how, how cool is that right from a it's pretty cool anyone, um, to be able to see immediate effects like that um, so basically, yeah, post-activation potentiation is kind of like this, this concept where you temporarily increase power and speed from having done some type of uh, very high force producing exercise several minutes beforehand. The mm -hmm. whole idea is that you're essentially trying to hyperactivate your nervous system and turn on as many monuments as possible, trying to wake up as many muscle fibers as possible so that when you actually do the explosive exercise that you can actually turn those muscle fibers on and use more of them and create more power um, and better, you know, speed. Um, so it's definitely a legitimate thing. And there's even some physiological elements from that thinking that, okay, maybe we get more calcium release per action potential and that can just drive stronger muscle contraction. It's, it's, it's a neuromuscular thing. It's also a, uh, a physiology uh, component. And then even like a, um, they're even saying now that it's driven a little bit by the stretch reflex because the, it's there's this thing called the Hoffman reflex and when they've done the research it like for some reason 
they found this post-activation potentiation thing doing like the heavy squats before you do the, the jumps. It helps cr uh, create a stronger, like essentially stretch reflex component. They're not even exactly sure why that is, but um, there's there's different, lots of different uh, post-activation potentiation protocols, and we can even get into that because there's some pretty cool ones. Fascinating. What does, uh, so first of all, the fascinating part is potential additional calcium being released uh that never heard that before so thank you for yeah. sharing that with me i love this is why i love doing these things where you say something like that so nerdy that i'm like what <laughs> there's only a few people on the planet that get geeked out about that conversation yeah uh the other thing i want to say is uh, can you just speak to it for our audience when you talked about uh lifting heavier things or moving quickly to turn on motor more motor units why is that how does that how does that work what's the what do you what do you mean when you say that yeah so i think actually this kind of ties in really well even to the whole concept of, of post-activation potentiation um if you look at kind of uh let's take the most two extremes here let's take like a general population person that doesn't work out that doesn't train okay and then let's take like an olympic weightlifter okay so um basically you 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 Tell the person who hasn't trained, you bring them in the weight room, you say, hey, let's like lift them as hard as you can or even put them on like a machine where they can just produce isometric force. Uh, they're not going to be able to probably turn on more than maybe 50, 60% of their motor units um, just because their bodies haven't been trained for that. It's kind of like uh, light switches. They can only turn on so many of them. They just haven't learned how to tap into those. And even if they do get up to like say 70, 80%, it's probably taking them like quite a few seconds for them to like turn them on those like kind of some of those fast twitch fibers or those mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know higher end or high threshold motor units they don't want to turn on very easily and so maybe they get to them three or four seconds into the contraction whereas an Olympic weightlifter they're so well trained the nervous systems are so efficient and they're so well practiced at the ability of recruiting as many motor units as possible basically at the flip of a switch they can turn on like a hundred percent or close to a hundred percent of their motor units and they don't just turn them all on over a few second period they turn them on within like you know a few milliseconds yeah. that power component um so one of the things with the post activation potentiation thing is it gives us time okay to uh um like turn on more motor units so basically the uh, there's two ways to look at this the heavy weight it it forces survival fibers fast twitch fibers high threshold motor units whatever to turn on, okay, nothing better than heavy weight to do that or overcoming isometrics, which we, which we can get to. And in order to, you know, produce more speed, well, we have to recruit those high threshold or fast twitch fibers, and, but sometimes we haven't been able to wake them up. The heavy weight is what wakes them up so we can actually use them on the explosive activities. Um, we can talk about uh, overcoming so, isometrics. So that's the activation and therefore there is a post activation. So the heavy lift is the recruitment of more fibers exactly. and that activates more, more motor units. And then immediately supersetted with that was, is another exercise post activation. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Exactly. But uh, one thing just for the, the listeners to take note of is that there is this balance of fatigue and potentiation that is very tricky. Uh, so it's, it's, even though we're supersetting it, it's not necessarily like immediately after. In fact, um, depending on the research studies and depending on the protocol and how intense the heavy exercise is and how many reps you do, it can take anywhere from like two minutes to like 10 minutes or longer to have the fatigue dissipate enough for that extra activation to create that potentiation response. Otherwise, if you do the, the explosive exercise too soon, you can actually be in a, a fatigue state. So you have to wait a little bit. And that's that's because of um, a creatine phosphate diminish the, within the muscle, and it takes quite a while for that to to kind of build back up. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, if you really want to be technical about it, it, it you know, you know, if you if, if somebody had like an explosive event that they had to do, like a sprint, it's like you would want to give probably five or ten minutes after they did the heavy exercise to really maximize that uh, that post activation potentiation response. Um, so, and then um, I mentioned this before, the overcoming isometrics, it's, it's something I just literally posted on, so I'm kind of like, it's in my head right now. Um, but 
that's where you're pushing against or pulling against an immovable object. Like you put, you know, 700 pounds in the barbell at a, you know, a mid range squat position, you just push against it. You're not going to be able to lift it. Um, but one of the things is that, uh, it can take time for muscle or motor units to turn on and it's called temporal summation. It's like, okay, as we push against that immovable object, it's like that first second, we may wake up 60% and then 70%. And then all of a sudden, after three or four seconds, we reach up to 100%, 100% and hold it, hold it, hold it. Whereas when we're doing a traditional rep, by the time we you know, ramp up to 60, 70, 80%, it's like the rep is over. And then we do another rep, 60, 70, 80, and the rep is over. Even if we do get to 100%, we maybe only hit that, that recruitment level for like a split second where those overcoming isometrics allows us to wake up those muscle fibers but keep them turned on for longer so our bodies get really used to having them activated. And then we actually get an even stronger, um, you know, potentiation response when we do the explosive event. Wow. Amazing. Well, can you explain while we're talking about you know, all of this, this movement and the potentiation, and you mentioned it earlier, but can you talk about the stretch shortening cycle and just kind of what that is and what's the value of, of, of learning that and then maybe get into the importance of um, that eccentric control before you can produce force. Yeah, definitely. So basically, I mean, the stretch reflex, I think a lot of people kind of have a basic understanding. You know, you stretch the muscle quickly and it's as a survival mechanism, essentially, or a reflexive mechanism that's built into the body to protect it from tearing or over-tearing. Um, our muscles will shorten as a result. So you stretch and boom, it, it shortens. Um, one thing that, and this, this is kind of going back to even the depth or range of motion principle, is that when a muscle is overly lengthened, it actually uh, will not produce the stretch reflex. Um, it, it's actually kind of a pseudo, you're using, you're really using like your tendons and ligaments to just bounce off of. It's not really the stretch reflex anymore. The stretch reflex, really happens kind of at this mid range or, or kind of like 90, 90 degree position. Um, so when you see people kind of bouncing out of the, the block bottom position of the squat and say, no, I like to do that to you know turn on my stretch reflex or train my stretch reflex. They're actually not training their stretch reflex. They're just treating their, their ligaments like a springboard to, to bounce off of, which is wow. not really ideal. If you really want to train that stretch reflex, you know, you go down to 90 and you can do it slow to work on, you know, biomechanics and technique and force structure where you can do it fast where you come down quick and then boom explode up from that that 90 degree position so again the stretch reflex it doesn't need to be overstretched in fact we want a high level of muscular stiffness it's actually a very important element of the stretch reflexes if the muscle is too loose or, or very relaxed it won't produce that that sudden explosive response and again to get more range of motion Beyond 90 degrees, essentially, we have to sacrifice too much stiffness, which, again, is why I'm kind of this big advocate of these 90-degree motions because it maximizes range of motion while maximizing stiffness at the same time. It's kind of that perfect balance, and then we can produce the, the best uh, you know, stretch reflex. Yeah, when I talk to people and maybe discussing power components of the OPT model at NASM, uh, I might point out that you never see the basketball player going up for a dunk and then doing a rock bottom squat before jumping up. Uh, you don't see that in high jumpers because you lose that response. Exactly. So there, and there's a sweet spot, right? But but that's that's hard to dictate um, from the outside uh, watching. It's so really, as a coach, you you accumulate the content, right? So this is try squatting a little bit lower when you go into your jump, see if that gets you up higher. People are gonna do something that feels natural, but just right. because it feels natural doesn't mean that it's optimized. So there are things that we do to, to get feedback and then we just wanna test it. Is it, can we go a little bit deeper? Actually try not to go that deep and see if you can just touch and go and get up just as high as you did before. So you're minimizing your time on the ground. Um, I, I just, I like, I like working with people and I like playing with these ideas oh, yeah. because they're not things that we think about. People just think that person's a good basketball player and they already jump optimally. That is not true. <laughs> exactly. 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 And, and that's why everybody has coaches. And you could say that from, um, you know, you're, you're coaching guy in baseball right now. You have a pitching coach. Some of that is technique. Um, you got a strength and conditioning coach that is going to take 
the the force production and then the the technique coach refines this kind of strength that you're developing this rate of force production that you're developing and trying to put some blinders on it some controls to it to say that's very good you can throw really fast but if it's not in the strike zone or if it's not where you want it placed then being a fast pitcher doesn't get you to the big leagues being a fast pitcher you could be a slow pitcher and place the ball really well and do better than people who can throw a hundred mile an hour ball. Exactly. No, that's, that's a great point. But I think that also brings up a, another good point of, of, you know, trying to be overly sports specific when you're training someone, which I try not to be. Um, and that used to be kind of like, uh, I remember when I was first in my undergrad, I remember seeing all these things like, Oh, you got to hook a, you know, a, a tennis racket handle up to a cable and mimic the forehand, you got to hook up a baseball bat to a cable to mimic the swing. And then after a few years, everyone was like, whoa, whoa, whoa this is getting out of hand. This is actually making the, the math worse. It's degrading the skill rather than improving it. So like you said, you know, you can have different coaches for different things. And as strength coaches, it's like, hey, we need to work on the fundamental elements of general movement patterns and making them more explosive, produce more force, cleaning up their biomechanics, just in those, you know, general uh, movements and then let their, their, uh, you know, skills coaches handled the other side of things. Yeah, one hundred percent. I was I was just speaking with Tony Ritchie, and uh, he's in Long Island, and he's a uh, he's a strength and conditioning coach for uh, MMA athletes. And the, first of all, one of the most enjoyable guys to talk to. He's just he's funny, so Long Island, so perfect for what he does, and uh, and he's talking about you know you got to be careful as a strength coach too because. The technique coach, the skill coach is going to have a plan. And I might look at that person and say, hey, you need to take a day off. You need to break. But the skills coach may have something different to say, but they're working on different things. Um, You know, is there is there a time where where you've ever had to work with a, a, a skill coach or a technique coach and just be like, hey, this person maybe they're overtraining or maybe they've just got some anxiety and they need to take a break for a little bit before coming back and, and getting their practices in. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen that happen a decent amount actually. Um, both with like, I mean, from the skill standpoint of just like hammering a, a muscle too much, it's like, wow, they need to, you know, they have a, a, you know, like a rotation, like a swing, like a baseball player. It's like, okay, hold on. Like you can tell they're starting to almost like their body's getting out of alignment, maybe doing yeah. too much, Swing, they need to kind of dial it back a little bit, or even like a speed training, doing so much speed training that your hip flexors just start getting so tight, or the nervous system start getting kind of worn down, or you know, they you can just see maybe they're actually starting to lose power. It's like it is, you know, the whole overtraining concept is it's tricky because there's so many different things you have to take into consideration and so many factors that can impact like how well someone's recovering. Um, so I think you got to look at all the all the pieces. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I've got another squat question. And that question is about slow, heavy squats, and then pause at pausing at end ranges of motion. So and I've seen this quite a bit, and they're heavy. And some of the guys that are doing this are beasts. And they'll go into uh, a nice slow eccentric. And then they'll hold a pause for, you know, five seconds, maybe longer at the bottom before lifting up. So can you just talk through like, why, why, what are some of the benefits or outcomes, or is that just, you know, people like to challenge themselves and this is just a means of challenging, but is there any strength or performance outcome that comes from it? Yeah. Interesting question. Yeah. So that's, that's the, I used to do uh, a decent amount of that when I first started looking at like the eccentric isometric stuff right before I started doing my PhD. I was doing a lot of like deep kind of ass to grass, like slow controlled pauses, like you said at the bottom. Um, they are, I don't want to say that they're, they're tough in a different way. Um, as far as the amount of effort that is needed to actually hold the bottom position and the amount of like muscle recruitment, it's actually not that high because you're just kind of hanging out passively like on the like tendons and ligaments. I mean, obviously you have some, you have some muscle activation for sure, but it's, it's not the same as holding like a 90 degree squat where like everything's tight, everything's locked and loaded. It's almost like, I remember when I used to do these, it's like, you're just kind of chilling down there. Now coming back up from that is tough because it's like, you're not in a very biomechanically efficient position to produce a lot of force. So, 
it's kind of like it's a little bit of a passive hold in my opinion and it's not one that i'm a huge fan of unless you're an olympic weightlifter i think i could see the benefit of that kind of strengthening that position and just getting comfortable in that bottom position and getting efficient in that position and even i guess you could say a power lifter a little bit um for athletes loaded i probably wouldn't recommend that body weight i could i could see the justification of that in fact i think everyone should be able to you know, get into a third world squat body weight. I don't see any issues with that. Now, not everyone maybe has the hip anthropometrics to do that, but as far as loaded heavy like that, uh, I, I don't know about holding those, those deep bottom positions. It's not something I would do. Yeah. Okay. All right. So just curious about why they might be doing it. And I know you don't know unless that's something that's kind of been out there and and dude you you hit on so many things you blog on so many things by the way congratulations your blog has been crushing it oh appreciate that man appreciate yeah that. yeah um and and so with that said uh, i think it's a great it's a great resource for people uh and you're doing great work um i want uh I, I i'm fortunate i get to ask all the questions but if you have a little bit more time i'd love to open it up and see if there anybody that's listening live that has some questions that they would like to ask you as well. Would that be okay? Yeah, man, definitely. As long as there's nothing shady, you know, no, I'm just playing. Oh, they only ask shady questions, so we could close out now if we need to. <laughs> nice, nice. All right, Greg, what do we have, man? Hey, let's let's be nicer to the uh, com to the commenters. They're not all shady, just most of them. All right. That's all right. <laughs> as we, as, uh, we have Rick. Rich in the comments wants to know, does Joel, uh, yeah, this is obviously for you, Joel, uh, think that the chronologically lengthened tissue due to po postural distortion or muscle imbalance have a similar effect of reducing stress reflex response in normal activity or exercise? Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I think I got all that. Um, yeah. So I think he's kind of saying like if someone like uh, if they're maybe like if they're if their tissue starts to remold as, as in a maybe a, an issue with their posture, um, can that maybe affect how their stretch reflex works? Yeah, I mean, you think about if, if the, like your structural components, like let's say your spine or your shoulders start to get so um, kind of rounded or you start to develop such cathodic posture that not only is it a muscular issue, but you actually have started to change the structural elements of your spine and, and your shoulders um, and the structural features of it. Yeah, I think that's definitely going to affect the stretch reflex and your ability to, to, you know, use those reflexive mechanisms and produce as much power as possible because now you have altered the length tension relationship of your, of your muscle fibers. Basically, if you look at like, you know, cathodic posture, well, your, your chest muscles and your front deltoids are overly shortened, your upper back muscles are overly lengthened. So if that's your natural kind of uh, go-to setting for how your muscles fire, they're not going to be balanced properly. They're, you're, they're going to be uh, in a compromised position to produce force and ultimately a compromised position, position to be able to use and rely on the stretch reflex. Okay. All right. Good. I like that. Thank you for sharing that. What else do you, what else you got, Greg? All right. Well, a, a bunch of people want to know what the name of your blog is, Joel. How can they find your blog? There it is. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's just uh, on my, uh, it's just advancedhumanperformance.com slash blog i think it's uh just on my uh my website just advanced human performance so it's uh yeah right, on, right under the blog section nothing too fancy while we're at it why don't you give people your instagram how do they how do they reach out to you i have more questions so if you've got a few more minutes i'd like to ask yeah, some more yeah, questions yeah. but please go ahead and yeah. shout yourself out yeah, yeah no everything is on uh um on instagram i think it's just dr joel Seaman. i think um everything if, if they go to my website I think everything is they got the little captions or little icons that they can go to. So they should be able to see everything there. Um, I got my book, Movement Redefined, which that kind of everyone, if, when they act, I get a lot of questions, people ask me like, hey, what resource do I have that kind of um, highlights and explains all of my training methods, whether or not people want to you know, think they're right or not right. If they want to know more about my rationale, kind of my scientific explanations, the research that I did and what I've been doing with my athletes, it's all highlighted and explained as, as detailed as possible um, in my book, Movement Redefined. It's like over 600 pages. Um, so that's on my website too. Wow, 600 pages. How many How many Sorry, of those pages are pictures? Um, probably only- I said, uh, I said 600 pages. How many of those pages yeah. are pictures? Oh yeah, probably only about <laughs> 20. 
Yeah, yeah. Probably only about That's 20. insane. Amazing. Yeah. All right, cool. Well done then, man. Um, so I've got a few questions, uh, two yeah. actually, and then, um, and you can answer them as quickly or be as loquacious as you choose. Um, but one is kind of general athletes doing Olympic lifts. What are the benefits and why would you not do Olympic lifts? Like maybe a um, clean or maybe a snatch uh, and I, I see that a lot with particularly football players, but I also see it in basketball players sometimes and, and baseball players. Why do the lifts or why not do some of those lifts with these athletes? That's a good question. I like this question. Um, so I think it comes down to a few. Uh -oh. uh, uh, so Olympic lifts, um, you know, they're great for producing kind of that, that quick force and that high power output. Okay. It's all about hip extension. Um, so uh, can you hear me there? I don't know if it broke up there. Can you hear me there just fine? Uh-oh. Hey, okay, got you back? Okay, are you are you there? Sorry, I think we broke hey, up. Hey, I'm here, yeah, we definitely broke up. Did you get the question about the yeah, Olympic lifts? Okay. Got the question, it's, yeah. So um, I think, like I said, I think it's a great question. I think it comes down to like technical proficiency first off. So I do think Olympic lifts are great for teaching power, for teaching hip extension and hip drive, which are very important for any sport. Um, but there's this point of diminishing returns that, you know, the clean and the snatch, especially the barbell versions, can be pretty technically oriented. So if the athlete is not very proficient at them or you try to teach them and they just don't catch on very quickly and they're just not efficient at the Olympic lifts, I think there are better choices that can be used because they end up struggling so much with the technique that they're not even able to, you know, produce as much power as their hips can, you know, generate. Now, if the person is proficient at it, you know, I think Olympic lifts uh, can be very effective for athletes. I actually like to do a lot of dumbbell versions these days. I find the dumbbells to be a little bit more joint friendly, a little bit uh, just more natural, which you would think, you know, exploding and launching two objects up instead of one and catching it would be harder. It, it isn't for some reason. It's just a lot more, um, a lot more natural. And I usually do the hang versions. I think the floor versions, um, I do think they're, they do provide benefit, but I think there's a lot of risks involved with them too. Um, so personally, I like to, I like to do the hang versions. <clears throat> Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Um, last one. I was listening to my buddy, my buddy, Joy Thurman has a podcast and he had Brad Schoenfeld on there, uh, which okay. we had back a few months ago. And he, he made an interesting comment. He said that he loves deadlifts, but not necessarily for hypertrophy. And when asked about that, he said it's just a very significant neurological demand in a deadlift. And that neurological demand may diminish some of the hypertrophic demands because there's so many things going on that you may not, I guess, I guess the rationale, I may be, I may be reading too much into this, but he said there's a lot of neurological demands. Why would that potentially increased neurological demand in your estimation maybe adversely affect the ability for hypertrophy to take place? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. So I think there's maybe two things to, to discuss there. But weird, right? Cause we, we like Brad, but like we know Brad's research. So we're like, huh, how do I make this make sense? It must. Yeah, yeah. No, no, he's always got fascinating research. I love this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I have seen heavy deadlifts. Um, maybe the easiest way to put this is like it can cause a little bit of adrenal fatigue and a little bit of like um, almost beat the athlete up, so to speak. It's just a very intense uh, type of, of movement and um, yeah. it can almost mess with recovery. It can, it can definitely alter the athlete's ability to recover um, well from their training session. So. Um, and also, you know, if form breaks down at all, it's probably one of the most risky exercises. So I do think that, that there is some something to that. I also think that in terms of like the hypertrophy element, um, I, I kind of agree with that because, you know, you think about most deadlifts and they're very concentric dominant. You know, you, there's, it's mainly yeah. you're lifting the weight up from the floor and then you, you're either dropping it or just kind of letting it free fall back to the floor. Um, now, with that said, it's one of the reasons why when I have people do deadlifts, I usually have them do kind of an eccentric isometric or constant tension version, usually with the trap bar, or they'll pick it up off the ground. And if they're going to do a set of four or five reps, it's only that first rep where they're going to be going, 
you know, to the ground or to the floor. They'll basically come down slow. They may come back down to the floor, but I'm going to have them do a controlled eccentric to basically trigger that hypertrophy uh, mechanism. And also, we won't need as heavy of a load to produce a good training stimulus. And so it probably won't beat their bodies up quite as much. It's, it's a little bit safer. So instead of, you know, doing, you know, if, if their max is, you know, 500 for a few reps, we may go 300 trap bar and do nice controlled constant tension, uh, you know, five reps with, with 300, like I said. Gotcha. Gotcha. Dr. Joel Seidman. Thank you so much, man. It's been a it's been a pleasure having you on. I think your insights have been incredible. I love, like I said, doing the podcast. I get to learn from so many people, uh, and their little nuggets that I get to pick up. And then, of course, I I re-listen to it afterwards just to make sure that I didn't miss anything. So I'm I'm looking forward oh, to listening to this I thing again. I can't listen to myself afterwards. No way. You're you're that's no it. no. That's really funny. Well, I that, but that's it. a lot of people, man. A lot of people, if they can't, they don't listen to themselves. They cannot watch themselves yeah, at no, all. No. I'm kind so, of the same. Yeah. yeah, I try to. I try to listen to it so I can. I can. I can point out how many times I said "uh" or <laughs> like oh, yeah, cut out my audible pauses. Yeah. Make that stop. Oh, oh my yeah, god. Well, dude, thanks a lot, man, for being here. Anything, um, anything to add before we wrap up today's podcast? No, I, th I think that was, uh, I think that was, uh, that was good. And we covered some good topics. I think if I'm going to say one thing is everyone, I, I would always encourage people to kind of do their own investigation and their own research as much as possible, rather than just taking things at face value and what's been done in the industry is kind of the norm just because everyone is doing it a certain way. Um, doesn't mean that it's optimal, you know, and I, I get a lot of flack for that. You know, it's like, oh, nobody's doing it like this. How come you're doing it like this? It's like, well, you know, I'm trying to think a little bit outside the box. I'm trying to problem solve a little bit. And I think if people did that instead of just following the masses, following the herd, and they kind of had an understanding for why they're doing it or, or even just, hey, if they think it's right, okay, at least know why you're doing it and look at some of the rationale and the research. And I think um, it'll pay dividends for people. I think that there's a lot of truth to that, but there's also um, you you have the pedigree to be able to do that. Yeah, right? like you've got the base to do that. There's so many people, the the Instagram trainers and the social media trainers that they live their life doing exactly what you said. Let's just make up cool new exercises um, and they, they look great and they get likes. But at what point would that ever be implemented with an actual client? Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I, I defer to you on a lot of things because of your education. But for, for a lot of people out there, I would say get the base down oh, yeah. first. No, like learn the rules, like in English, right? Like learn the rules, where yeah. the periods go, where do the commas go, where do you do, and then break the rules. Why? Because you are apt enough to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why you got the, the NASM, the NASM uh, protocols, right? For the, the trainers, they get certified. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> excellent all right dr joel seedman thank you so much for being here y'all thanks for joining in uh and for those who ask questions live on the facebook feed i appreciate it my name is rick ritchie you've listened to the nasm cpt podcast